0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: How do you surrender? Once you can clean things out, you can clean out disappointment and trauma, then you realize you're still here. Oh, my God, you're still here, and you're intelligent, and you're making a contribution, and you're beautiful, and you want to make a difference in the world. And then you realize you're in choice. All those things that may have happened to you in the past, maybe you didn't feel like you were in choice because you didn't know any better. You were too young. You were just learning. You're in choice now. Like, I can choose who I text. I can choose who I'm going to give my time to. I can choose to be offended. I can choose to be loved. I can choose to let love in. I can choose to look everywhere in my life for all the things I have that I prayed for years ago.
2: Welcome back to The Unmistakable Creative for the fifth time.
1: Number five. Am I like a record holder?
2: You are the record oh, holder. I love it. You're not only Winning. the only guest who stuff, have but. appeared five times, but you're probably the single-handed uh, largest referrer of new listeners to The mm. Unmistakable Creative.
1: That's because you give great interview.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Well, you are a fantastic guest, so that makes it easy. Um, I wanted to start with something that I haven't asked you before.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh What did your parents do for a living? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your Mm -hmm. career?
1: Uh, My parents for a living, various things. My mother, I mean, one of my first memories of being out in the world is my mother taking me with her to college. So my parents got knocked up in high school and I am the result of that. And um, so to get her BA... She toilet trained me in the college ladies' room and became a counselor and a therapist. And eventually she was a vocational rehabilitation counselor. So how that impacted me was that going to work with my mom meant that my first art teacher was a gentleman who would be referred to as a little person who did not have use of his arms, who I don't think he had legs and he taught me how to draw by having a paintbrush in his mouth and working with morbidly obese people and people with severe cerebral palsy and watching my mother place them in jobs. So that just generated a lot of, I think, tenderness in my... You know, I think I came in with a really tender heart, and that was even more tenderizing in the best kind of way. And my dad, my parents, and this is the reason they're not together anymore polar opposites my dad was a hockey player ran hockey arenas i mean it's like just like canadiana to the max so you know how did that inform me tolerance for pain my dad coming home from the hospital again with a cast and you know what you do with your cast you just cut the fucking thing off <laughs> like that's how my life was just extremes and i don't know i i to talk to my therapist about how those extremes affected me but yeah
2: With a mom as a therapist, do you felt like you were uh, given a a significant amount of spiritual teaching growing up? Because, I mean, Mm -hmm. you've spent your whole life not only being a spiritual teacher, but a seeker. Uh, Mm -hmm. Do you think that started early? Do you think that part of the job was already done because your mom was a therapist? Because I wonder about this because my parents were the furthest thing from encouraging me to explore this kind of information.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think about not comparing myself at all to... Serena and Venus Williams, but they, you know, they talk about the sense of destiny of, you know, at three years old, I think it was their parent, their dad put a tennis racket in their hands. Well, when I was like 11, we were reading Wayne Dyer. (laughs) It's like, I remember Wayne Dyer's erogenous zones, one of his first books and Tibetan book of the dead in the house. And then came Louise Hay and affirmations and going to bioenergetic workshops. And yeah, absolutely primed me to... Be relentlessly neurotic about <laughs> finding out what the higher truth is. Yeah.
2: How did your understanding of this evolve with age? Because I I think about this as a surfer. When I see little kids in the water, mm. uh, I see them and I think, you're not having a spiritual experience, at least not that you know of. Mm. Uh, but as an adult, I see it as a spiritual practice. So I wonder if I had read some of these books when I was that age, what my experience would have been like at that age and how reading those same books changes with age, like how you view them differently?
1: I think you feel less lonely and that's the best reason. It's not, um, you know, like how cool it is, is it that you could surf and just live and be in that experience and you like you're so in it at that age, you're not even reflective. And for me, where I'm at on my path now is, this is going to sound ironic, I actually want to be less of a seeker and more of a liver, like just... I just want to refer to myself for the answers. Um, but yeah, all of the the teachings that are out there, yes, technique, yes, how-tos. Yeah, I think the universe runs on, on the rails of a science. You know, there's something to how we're all kept together. But just to feel like you're not alone, that's the gift of external knowledge.
2: Yeah. You said you want to be less of a seeker, and I wonder... Why do we look so much outside of ourselves for answers to all of these things?
1: I think it comes from birth. I mean, this is a really deep question, actually. I think, you know, the the seed of mortal coil is there when we are hatched. And I think birth is a gorgeous, traumatic thing. We, we, we're we declaring ourselves separate from source in a way. And I think we spend so much of our time trying to get back to source And the route back is love. I mean, it's really, for me, it's the only way home. And I'm very aware at this point in my life that I really just want to go home. Yeah. Yeah, Be home.
2: So there are two things I I think I told you that I hadn't read Desire Map in its entirety until before this interview. And I had a bunch of notes from it. But I remember one line in particular struck me, and I didn't know this about you, that you're an only child. Yes.
1: Yes. Uh, you can't tell? I mean, I'm so, <laughs> look at me. <laughs> well,
2: the reason I asked is, you know, I wanted to ask about your parents, but I, I wonder uh, how the experience of being an only child and the parents that you had and, and kind of the way they raised you, what impact has had, Has that had on the way that you're raising your own son? Like, what have oh, you wow. decided that is worth keeping? Because it, this is the question that I'm stuck with here is, I think every one of us, basically, we look at our parents and we're like, well, I'm definitely not going to do that because you guys fucked me
1: up. Yeah. Yeah. You owe me a lot of money in therapy bills right about now. Yeah. Um well my son is an only child and I always thought I would have more than one kid, but marriage did not dictate that, divorce now. And um I don't I d I'm not that reflective on how I was parented affecting how I parent now. I mean my tenets of parenting now are I really believe you cannot ever Ever give a human too much love, too much attention, too much affection. Life is hard enough. Just pour it on. So, you know, now my son is 14. And so some there, th- th- that natural separation and recoiling has started to happen. <laughs> so painful. Nobody tells you about that when your kid doesn't want the hug anymore in front of the school. Um, I have my other tenant is there is no shaming. There's no shaming and there's no mind tricks. You know, like I, I remember seeing, um, I think we've all witnessed something like this, you know, little girl in a department store, the mother is understandably stressed, overwhelmed, whatever's going on, and then comes in that little mind trick that so many parents do where they say, "While well, I'm leaving. You wouldn't leave your kid in the department store. Why would you lie and create that kind of little traumatic incident with that child? There's so many other ways to like cajole and guide and invite and compel children without threatening them. Um, So there's no shame, there's no lying. And I've been very, you know, in terms of parenting, I get asked a lot about being a mother and being an entrepreneur. And I've been really open with my kid about what brings me joy. And there's lots of compromises. Like, you know, when he was little, he watched way more movies than I thought I was ever going to allow him, you know, and I just like, I got a radio interview and I'm so excited to do it. You get to watch The Incredibles again. And its I think it's just so important for your kids to see what lights you up. And that helps them do the math sometimes when you're not always there. And it helps them move towards what is going to light them up. Yeah.
0: Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: You mentioned uh, earlier that you thought you would have more kids, Mm -hmm. marriage, divorce, and it made me think of something that uh, a friend that you introduced me to, Terry Cole, had said to me on The Unmistakable Creative when we were talking about love and boundaries. And she said, you have to be able to let go of the way you thought it would be in order to be open to the way that it could be. Yes. And that really struck me particularly because my sister just got engaged. I just mm. turned 40 and I'm still single. I wondered, uh, is, was there a point in your life where you were able to say, okay, you know what? i able to let go of what I thought it was going to look like. And, and how did that unfold? And how do other people do that?
1: I have to do it all the time and I do it reluctantly. And sometimes it's excruciating. Yeah, I mean, there's no other way to because i think we want what we want we have these cravings we want the love we want to go back home we want the connection and we work so hard i mean part of part of the reason it's so hard to let go of the dream and to grieve how things have turned out in a way you didn't want them to turn out is because we're so addicted to the strive mm. and we're so hooked on goals and, you know, I wrote a book about soulful goals, you know, and just, I'm, I'm so, and, I, and at this point, I'm just like, I'm so, I said this 10 years ago. I said it five years ago. I said it in the last book. I've said it in all, every book I've written. I'm so done with the striving, but Sri, I'm really done with the striving now. <laughs> I'm like a whole new level of done with the strive because I want that sense of home in my life and that striving and that goal addiction and the accomplishment and the life hacking I'm so I don't want to hack my life I want to be in my life and I want to be life-giving and life encouraging for other people and I'm I'm done with the shortcuts I don't even want to optimize my day I really don't <laughs> I <laughs> I just want to be present I want the calmness that comes with presence I want the absence of not that's not the absence of pain I want the I want the capacity to be with grief and I want the capacity to be with ecstasy. And the more externally referencing I am, I mean, those things are all thieves of of my joy. Every time I go on Instagram, which is neurotically, it's part of my business. I wouldn't be sitting here right now. Every time I go on to see if somebody loves me um and hearted me and you know i just checked my most recent post which is amazing by the way but um every time i go in there i'm just you know i'm getting i'm I'm snacking elsewhere where if i just refer to myself I then i'm more radiant i'm more calm i'm more creative i'm a better parent i'm a better girlfriend you know well,
2: you mentioned instagram so uh
3: yeah let's I, go there
2: I want to talk about this because it's been on my mind a lot lately. Um, I just deactivated my personal Instagram account, but that's a whole other story.
1: Yeah, that was Uh, foolish, but we can talk about (laughs) it. Uh,
2: the two things that that come from that, uh, I remember you posted, uh, a picture of Geron Lanier's book, 10 arguments for deleting social media. And I remember thinking to myself, probably because I didn't stick around to read the comments. I was like, how has nobody mentioned the irony of this, uh, of using
1: social media to post about not
3: using social media. Uh, yeah, Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. Uh, but you mentioned that you're tired of striving. And I can't help but wonder if social media amplifies this sense of, of striving. And I remember I was writing about this the other day. I thought, you know, you look at Instagram, right? Yeah. And at moments, I think that we've confused attention with affection. And the fact that they use a heart as their symbol for digital forms of validation is incredibly telling. Can I telling. just
1: stop you there? Just let, that's a truth bomb. We, we're confusing attention with affection, We are. It's beautiful. Thank you. Um, I hope it's becoming just just much more widespread in terms of awareness. All of these tools are very intelligently designed to create addiction. A number of the developers of some of these tools, Facebook included, have said they don't even go near their own creations anymore. This is designed to give us the hit. They want that little... Brain flare that happens, so you stay on that device so that they make more money in the various ways: membership, subscription, and advertising dollars. Um, you know, Facebook is not a democracy. I strongly believe, and you know, inspired by Jaron Lanier's work around this, that Facebook should be a tool that is free. You really want to change the world? Make this free. Make this really, truly accessible. Um, and and by free, I mean advertising free because we are paying with our attention with our emotions with our time to be on there and it's in, and we are being severely brainwashed and interrupted. Now, Facebook has its own kind of it's its own kind of personality, its own kind of beast. My experience over the last year has been that it is a playground for vitriol, it's a circus. I want nothing to do with it. I made a huge strategic decision in my business I haven't been on it in three months. That may sound like no big deal to some people listening. It's actually a huge deal when social media is a driver of your revenue. I have nine people to, to support that I, you know, it's a joy to support them. They support me. Um, so, yeah, I just, um, it is a place for cowardly action. Um, and yeah, it's saving lives. And let me back up and say, I am not complaining at all about the power and the beauty and the efficacy and the globalism of technology. Never. It's saving lives. It's bringing us closer together. The bottom line for me is always love. Technology, in a huge way, is generating a lot of love on this planet. But here's my truth bomb. All communication begins with intention. All communication begins with intention. And the poison and the the skewing that social media addiction creates, you know, it pulls us out of our hearts and it's really messing with our intentionality. We can no longer hear our own inner voice. And so before we engage, you know, I, if I don't like something, I don't social media about it there's enough negativity. Why, why do I, even if it's a shitty movie, I don't want the karma of affecting someone's ticket sales. I don't, I don't even, I just want to be love. I want to be love in every space. And it doesn't mean I'm, I mean, you, you know this about me. It doesn't mean I'm not without an opinion. I mean, really everything I'm a stand for is discernment and love, love with discernment Um, but all that to say, screw Facebook (laughs) and I've gotten to a point and I see this happening with a lot of friends that, you know, I remember talking to a friend who wanted to quit smoking and her way of quitting smoking was she just, she gave herself one weekend and she just smoked her ass off and she just going to smoke until she got sick. She just couldn't stand it anymore. And that, and it was effective for her. I mean, she had the shakes and everything on Monday morning, but um, that's been my relationship now to social media. I've, it's social media has been a track for my workaholism. Um, workaholism, we can talk about that if you want. I've, yeah. I haven't talked about it publicly yet. Um, but I've gotten to, I had to get to a point where my workaholism collided with social media disdain, where I was just like, I do not want to engage in this way anymore. I want I want to live. I want to cook something. That's not, I'm lying. I don't want to cook anything. <laughs> but I just want to be in my life. I want to live. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, so you talked about workaholism. Yeah. The other thing that really has become deeply concerning to me is that we have created an artificial sense of celebrity with these tools. Oh, yes. And there are moments when I, I sometimes look at people who follow you and I think that they want to be you. And I wonder, one, what do you have to say about this whole artificial sense of celebrity? Do you think it's done great harm to our culture uh, because I think what makes me really like aware is when you go to your Starbucks and the barista has no idea who the fuck you are. It's like, nah, eh, you're Srini who gives a shit. You're just another schmuck ordering coffee. Uh, and that is something I think highly of much, much more aware of, yeah. uh, is that we've created this very artificial sense of celebrity and mm-hmm. other people aspire to be something that isn't even real.
1: I don't think that dynamic is anything new. Yeah. I think, you know, you could look, you could go back to the white picket fence neighborhood in the fifties, everybody wanted to be somebody else. Everybody else was faking it. So we've all, we've been faking it for centuries. We've been wanting to be someone other than ourselves for centuries. I think what's happened is, um, you know, obviously it's amplified. Um, and Instagram's a lie. Instagram is a lie. Everybody hashtag that because, um, First of all, you know, I'll say as somebody who does a lot of stuff, you know, in social media and is public, look, I am not Instagramming my darkest days and that's my prerogative. I do not have to share my life. I do not have to be transparent. I mean, I'm very vulnerable in conversations. Um, I, I'm there There is no Instagram story happening when I'm doing the ugly crying therapy. Um, But... What's what's the Latin phrase for buyer beware? Thank caveat. Yes, Um, that's how you need to engage with social media. Just know, like, listen, don't be stupid. Be intelligent and about the engagement. This is all filtered. I look 10 years younger, probably, I think, um, because there's this little smiley face thing you can press before you go on your Instagram story. And it just takes, it just gives this nice little glow. I hope the camera has it right now here. <laughs> um, yeah, come on, come on. And, and I think we have a responsibility, those of us who have gained, you know, have the numbers on, on social to really keep it as real, as comfortably possible, as wisely possible. You know, it's like, you know, you and I were talking earlier today about book tours and things like that. And I was talking about the stresses of, you know, campaigns that I've done and and how I've changed as a result of them. And I never talk about a painful situation when I'm in the painful situation mm-hmm. because for a couple of reasons. One is because I'm taking, you know, because I want to be useful then I get all the lessons and I clean up my, I get myself cleaned up and I extract the learnables and then I'll turn it into a piece of writing or something, you know? I owe that. That's called being professional. But also, I don't want the energetic attention from people when I'm in pain. I don't need you to pray for me. I don't need you to project on me. I don't need you to be happy that I'm suffering because that happens. I'm just going to go through my thing and. Teach about it later. There's a vulnerability, an energetic vulnerability that we need to be aware of when it comes to posting stuff on social media. And I feel really passionately about this when it comes to children. Mm -hmm. And at the same and, and and let me just say, while I'm passionate about how I conduct myself in my own life with this, I also, and I with great sincerity, I have very little judgment about people who do it differently. It's their life, it's their child. But I'll tell you how I run my life. My child is 14 you'd be hard-pressed to find a photo of him on social. Um, Whenever I do post about him, you don't see his face. Whenever I, I always ask his permission, it pains me to see photos of children sleeping. I would never do anything with anybody else in terms of posting something on social that I would not want done of myself. Don't take a picture of me while I'm asleep and put it on social media. It's my most vulnerable moment. Don't tell anybody about my tantrum. I'm having a tantrum, you know? So, and everything is energy. That is a morsel of energy that you're putting out of somebody else's being. Be be intentional about it. Wow. Yeah.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods,
2: So there's a a number of lines that I uh, underlined when I went through Desire Map, but this one in particular struck me, I think, probably because I've been feeling this way for the last couple of weeks. Uh, Sometimes I reached a goal way later than I planned, and even though I would attained it, I felt like a loser for taking so long to make it happen. I generally feel five to ten years behind on my major life aspirations.
1: Oh, those are my words, yeah. (laughs) Those are your words. (laughs) Oh, yeah, loser. Totally. I'm late all the time.
2: Do you still feel like that?
1: Um, do I still feel like that? Well, I think I've been around enough that I really can see the divinity of everything that hasn't gone my way. So for anybody listening, who's just like, you're feeling behind the eight ball and you're thinking you should have the bestseller or the marriage, or why did that happen? Or why'd you get fired? If you're in a dark place, just, just take one grain of what I'm saying now. Just believe me for a nanosecond that really there is a divine order to things things every single disappointment and i've had some significant ones every failure every heartbreak everything that i went after so you know vigorously that didn't turn out thank god i've was spared some kinds of destiny um i just have a deeper level of trust now doesn't mean it's easy all the time doesn't mean I don't
2: want what I want. <laughs> well, I, I think that, you know, that makes sort of a, a perfect segue to, to ask you about this other thing that you just said, uh, you said is when we stop struggling to make something go the way we want it to, our energy shifts, we surrender to what is and hard as it may be, we become willing to face the facts and become more present.
1: Yes.
2: Uh, I think that part of my obsession with attention is that it pulls me into the present. And I realize like the depression is worrying uh, about things from the past that I can't change. Anxiety is worrying about things in the future that I can't control. How do you stop basically struggling to make something go the way you want it to do? Or how do you surrender? I guess is really where I'm going with this.
1: Um, I think you need to clear the trauma from the past. You need to reconcile childhood stuff. You need to reconcile failures you've had as an adult And you need to clean that out so that you can just create space to be present. So that's the hard work. And that's the work that a lot of us don't want to do because it can be so difficult. And that's you just find a good therapist and you just scrape that stuff out and you don't stop and you push and you cry and you breathe and you love yourself so deeply that you know you're going to get to the other side. And I think everybody has that, just everybody has that to some degree. And then what was the question I got off on therapy there? Um,
2: How do you surrender?
1: How do you surrender? Once you can clean things out, you can clean out disappointment and trauma, then you realize you're still here. Oh my God, you're still here and you're intelligent and you're making a contribution and you're beautiful and you want to make a difference in the world. And then you realize. You're in choice. All those things that may have happened to you in the past, maybe you didn't feel like you were in choice because you didn't know any better. You were too young. You were just learning. You're in choice now. Like, I can choose who I text. I can choose who I'm going to give my time to. I can choose to be offended. I can choose to be loved. I can choose to let love in. I can choose to look everywhere in my life for all the things I have that I prayed for years ago and um and i think you know and i and i do write about this in the desire map i think we get so attached to wanting things to be a certain way that we forget we we don't see you know that a lot of people who want to be in a you know, a relationship with a significant other will get this. You know, like say, I want to meet my person. I want my man. I want my woman. I, I want my human. And we forget to see that all the qualities that we're craving from that other person exist in our life already. Like there's a laughter, and there's passion, and there's support. It doesn't mean you don't hold the prayer for getting all of that in one package. But my belief is that gratitude is a vibration. And the universe is hearing everything you're saying, and it it will respond because we're in a co-creative relationship with life. I'm in this with God. I'm not asking God to take the ball and run for it every day for me. Sometimes, yeah, Jesus, take the wheel. But I'm going to show up because I'm in choice. And that means I've got to I'm so grateful for the love I have. And I think that cues the cosmos to give me more of that. And that does not mean I don't struggle with deep longings for particular things. But that's the difference between being the agent of your life, you know, and and being a victim of your life is I don't I don't want to rest in the craving. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to be grateful and I'm going to show up.
2: So we talked a little bit about this last time when we were talking about White House truth. You wrote about um, depression and, and mental health issues, and yeah. you know this last year we've seen some very high-profile suicides with people like Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, and we've been talking a lot about Mac trauma Miller this past week and healing. And I just you know wonder what you know what do we do about this? Yeah, because I don't think it should take a celebrity suicide or a startup founder suicide. For us to say, okay, we have a problem. We should talk about this, and that's usually the only time we do talk about it. When I, I talked to Frank Warren at Post Secret, he said, for every one of those, there are thousands we never hear about.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we need to share our stories. This is the beauty of media and what you're doing. Just asking this question. I mean, I just put a post. It's it's you know it's very timely. I'm not sure when this airs, but right now we're having this conversation during the U.S. National Suicide Prevention Week. I just put a post out about. Um, you know, last year I was, when I was still on Facebook, I reached out to the community and said, I've got a a a spouse of a dear friend who has suicidal ideation. And, you know, we were kind of working around the clock to make sure he was going to be safe. And so we curated all the responses we got. And it's the first time I've ever put a post out and, and said, you know, with all with all love and modesty, like I hope just some lines of this save somebody's life, you know? Mm. So I think we need to tell our stories and have the courage to do that. And you realize you're not alone. You know, like I can tell you, I'm just coming off of four days of like this intense therapy intensive where I really had to like string myself together with chicken wire to suit up and show up today. I'm like, I'm here and I'm good. I'm good, everybody. But That's important to know. Like, I'm going to look all foxy on Instagram today, but three days ago, I was working on childhood stuff and love stuff. And cause that's what it takes for me to really show up. So there's that. I think we need to tell our stories. I think we need to, um, really look at our addiction to social media and what it's doing to our brains. This is a big, big problem that I think is, you know, is going to it's in pandemic proportions to what it's doing to brain chemistry. And I think we need to, I mean, this is so um, lofty and esoteric, but we need to make love the bottom line. I mean, it's greed is usurping love in every segment of society. And um, no matter where we're at, whether we're running for political position or we're a teacher or we just want to be the best significant other, we need to be asking ourselves like, really what would love do right now? And love is not that interested in profit. It's not that interested in looking good. And it's certainly not interested in the, in the little likes that you're getting on your Instagram feed. It's present and it's forgiving and it's tender and it's courageous and, and love has you talk to other people. You know, we're, we're living the part of the situation with social media is we're just becoming more and more partitioned and we're being fed things according to our interests and we're on our phones more. So we're talking to people less, you know, just in the cab on the way over here. um, I had a, the, the, the taxi driver was an Ethiopian gentleman who told me, I'm Canadian and he said he loves Canadians. Of course, I said, yes, we're all lovable and kind and perfect. (laughs) And, um, and we apologize way too much. And he was telling me a story about not being able to speak English when he got here. And this woman took him in and and gave him a job on the line cooking. And, and I thought to myself, you know, what's happening right now? I'm not on my phone, checking my Instagram while he's driving me. I'd put my phone away. And that's why that conversation happened. And because I'm Canadian.
2: <laughs> uh, well, uh, I think, you know, you've talked about this idea of addiction to achievement. I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about addiction and you said as hardwired achievement bots, many of us subscribe to systems of success that actually become blockages to our instincts. Mm-hmm. Structures, programs, regimens, all disciplines and theory should be to support our freedom and independent thinking, but may serve to strifle our life force instead. Yes. And, uh, you know, you said that profit and greed are driving so much of society uh, and they coexist with this. And this is a really weird and esoteric question, but do you think that long-term capitalism is the way that we're going to organize society? Is it a sustainable way to organize society
1: going forward? No, it's not sustainable. I mean, look at the mess we're in because of capitalism. Um, Yeah, greed is eclipsing things. So I think a holistic cap, you know, if capitalism is going to get us where we want to go, first of all, we need to be clear on where we want to go. And we need to have the self-agency to have a vision of what our our ideal future is. We're so fucking numbed out. We don't even know what ideal is anymore. I mean, this is why I'm so interested in the conversation around knowing how it is that you want to feel. What I call your core desired feelings. So if capitalism does not become, in my definition, truly holistic and have a triple bottom line. Can we at least have a triple bottom line? Can we start there at the basics? It's just going to No, it's raping the earth. It's food secured. I mean, I could go on Sri. Where do you want me to go with this? Like it's 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 big. Really, really this is the ideal is that capitalism, or let's just say commerce, is used as a tool to create positive social change. And if it's not creating positive social change, it's not enabled to exist. That's it. It's got to check all the boxes. Is this good for humanity? Check. Is this is this sensitive to the environment? Check. Is this moving us forward? Check. And the reason it's so difficult to get there, you know, other than the fact that we're numbed out and detached, is because it would have we'd have to slow down, and we're on this runaway train of innovation. Innovation breeds innovation, and um, you know, innovation most certainly can come from the heart, but it's also a very intellectual semicolon ego-driven pursuit. I am personally not that interested in innovation in my own life. I I used to identify with it. I want to innovate in business, and and. I don't, you know, I'm interested in depth and sincerity and, yeah, sorry, that was a very esoteric. I don't I don't think that my answer will go over very well in <laughs> Silicon Valley, but I'm the, I don't care.
2: Yeah. Uh, when it comes to this issue, what do you think the role of the individual is and what do you think the role of institutions should be to get us from where we are to ideal?
1: Well, individuals make up the institution. Um, so the role of individual is everything. And what happens is When you do your work as an individual, when you really devote to, um, you know, what I would call a path of light and of consciousness and of making a contribution and of kindness, when you do the work to respect yourself, you cannot help but feel connected to other people. You will be kinder. You know, I just had the most beautiful conversation with a friend a few weeks and he said to me, you know, Danielle, you can't save every fish in the sea and you can't clean up every plastic bottle on the beach. And, you know, I'm really in this passage of realizing that and really just how am I going to stay in my lane and stay sane and, and not cry in my kitchen every morning because of the headlines and and really show up to contribute. And he said, you know, Don't you think if we just were better to each other in our neighborhoods, somehow that would affect the pollution that's happening in the oceans? And it's a long way to get there, but the answer is yes, because love makes you more conscious and intelligent and inclusive, and love has you always looking for a solution for your neighbor.
2: So you and I are both media creators. We both tell stories. Uh, Media in particular, I think, is in an age of of major change, given the political uh, climate in the United States. Um, I think that the media that you consume largely determines your version of reality. It does. And I wonder what you feel um, your responsibilities are as somebody who creates media, knowing that this is happening. And what do you feel my responsibilities are?
1: Be you. I'm going to be me. I'm going to talk about what I'm passionate about. Let me back up and say, I'm going to have the courage to talk about what I'm passionate about because you cannot be a media creator and have thin skin. You will get pushback. You will lose friends. You will be at some point, I hope it doesn't happen, but at some point it's very possible you will be very misunderstood and ganged up on. And those are painful crucifixions that sometimes happen when you're in the public eye. Um, but yeah, just have the courage and the conviction to be yourself in that space. Yeah. And I think it's so out of control. I mean, everything I take in now, I'm just like, big grain of salt. Like, you're going to believe that? You're going to choose to believe that? You know, my kid came home the other day and said, yeah, the scientists and coconut oil. I was like, you just fell for it. That was a well, you know, the production value of this lecture was high. Someone was slamming coconut oil. What's your body say about coconut oil? Are we going to cook with it? Are we going to, you know, it has to be that everything. What does your intelligence say? What's your intuition say? That, that's all you got. You know, the, 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 the tool of the future is your intuition. It's going to be all we have to separate lies from truth. It's such a mess. You gotta you gotta hone your psychic telephone if you're gonna navigate from here on forward.
2: Hmm. I think it's interesting you brought up being uh, misunderstood because my first exposure to somebody who was an incredibly high-profile media figure was Glenn Beck. And I remember the response from my audience to the fact that I was going to go and meet this guy. There are a lot of things that really struck me about the perception that media creates and the reality of the person. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was shocked at how nice he was and how different he was than I thought. I know he said some awful things.
1: Yes, but we're responsible for what we're... So let's talk about Glenn yeah. just as a persona. I mean, we're responsible for how we're showing up. So why is he not... Why? Let, let me even take Glenn out of the scenario. Yeah. Why does one, why does a person not come off as nice as... I hate the word nice, but as kind, as open-minded, you know, because a lot of us in this space want shock value. We want, we, you know, we get seduced by this persona we create. And why do we create the persona? Because we want the job. Why do we want the job? I mean, it all goes back to, are we going to make the money? And you have to be willing to change. You Don't, we can't be, I don't want to be fixed into a version of DL. I want to show up as who I am now. And um, yeah, that, that that takes some doing. <laughs> it takes some therapy. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: Uh, speaking of money, uh, this is another thing that really struck me from Desire Map. Uh, you said, I don't run my business according to measurable objectives. We don't have targets that we work toward. There are lots of things I could be quantifying and my effort toward like the number of subscribers to my website, books sold, Facebook fans, quarterly revenue. All these numbers directly impact my bottom line and for that matter, my happiness, but they don't guide the ship. What guides my ship is a singular foundation of intention, making stuff that feels good to make. And that really struck me, particularly because I feel lately I've literally been measuring my self-esteem and profit and losses and book sales.
1: Oh, sweetheart. I feel for you. It's a disaster. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So how do you get to this? and yet manage to run a business where nine people work for you and things work?
1: Yeah. Well, things don't always work. And that's part of it. That's part of being an entrepreneur. That's part of life. You know, we still fail lots and we don't hit things. Um, I would say that's, that statement that you just read is now only half true. I've hired people who care about the numbers. <laughs> and, and that gives me deep peace so that I can just be eccentric and just go create stuff and just do what I do best. And the numbers game really turns them on. And I have sacred responsibilities now. Like, you know, and I look at my business as really, I look at my life like degrees of concentric circle. So, you know, the reason I have a business is I want to be self expressed and a career, let's say. And then out of that, then I take care of my family and my friends. And then out of that, I take care of my people. That, that's, the, that's the number two, three goal is to make sure that the people who are on the D-bus are like healthy and they can afford to buy homes and go on honeymoons and be well. Because if they're not well, I'm an asshole. It's like, I'm, it's so hypocritical. And then the fourth layer of that pie is to serve people. Um, but yeah, I'm really clear. Like I, yeah, so that's it for me and I can't do anything for the money. I can't, I've done it before. It's painful. I lost sleep at night. It's easy to say when your business is ticking along and, and we still got to hustle. It's not like, you know, I got a mortgage and, um, yeah, but it's never, you've interviewed how many people? 700 now. Yeah. Out of 700, how many people have said, don't do it for the money? Most of them. Yeah.
2: Actually, pretty much all of them. Yeah. Even the ones who have a lot of it.
1: Even the ones who have a lot of it. And I'll tell you what one of my shrinks says about the money. It's never enough. And out of the high net worth people that I've talked to, there is that, you know, because I'll go right in into interviewing anybody, right? And it's it's never, the, the money is never enough. So you've got to find your enough. In other places.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So you brought up this idea of enough and I had a conversation with a woman named Sasha Hines who had talked to me about this very idea and hedonic adaptation and why we're so dissatisfied even when we do get to the so-called goalpost and how it just keeps moving and moving and moving. Do you think it's possible to get off the hedonic treadmill?
1: Oh, I hope so. God, I hope so for our second I mean,
2: it seems that the entire economy depends on our ability to st- us staying on this hedonic treadmill.
1: Yes, all capitalism, media, and advertising depends on you thinking you're a loser. And you're too fat and you're behind. Are you too brown? Are you too white? Are you too curvy and too thin in the wrong places? Like It's all based on a scarcity model. We are eating a diet of scarcity all the time, even literally. I mean, so much empty calories and no real nutrition in what we're eating I, we need to do a podcast just on food food security. Um so is it possible to get off? Yes, it's possible. And the people who are getting off of it need to tell their stories that, you know, we're we are voting with our hearts. We are eating, we're we're a stand for nutrition. We're going to do this is what love looks like in commerce. This is what courage looks like on social media. The future depends on us getting off that treadmill. Your sanity depends on us getting off that treadmill. Um, everything you want, this is it, everything you want, the love and the sexiness and the being of service and the connection and that sense of home wherever you go, depends on you getting off that treadmill of scarcity.
2: Wow. Uh, this is another thing that really struck me. Uh, in the book particularly because I'm, I'm thinking a lot about how social programming impacts our lives. You said, we can inherit ambitions like we inherit eye color and vocal tone. Sometimes inherited dreams are a perfect part of our soul's unfolding. In divine convenience, we're born into families or cultures that have just the right business or lifestyle for us because it's the exact same amount amount we're called to live. It feels like a perfect fit. I thought about that a lot because of the fact that I grew up in an Indian culture where we're encouraged to do certain things, mainly just become doctors and lawyers and engineers, Uh, and then I look at this and I think about the fact that people look at you and they inherit ambitions from somebody that they look up to, even though they're not their own. Mm -hmm. I know because I've done it.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, how do you let go of inherited ambitions when they've been so deeply woven into your life? Mm -hmm. Almost to the point of you being unaware of them.
1: Well, I think looking up to someone and having aspirational ambitions is a super cool thing. I mean, I get a lot, I get asked a lot about how do I find a mentor? I'm like, eh you don't need to find a mentor. There is no magic mentor. Um, just look at the people you admire and see what they're doing. And there, there's so much to learn there. So um, it takes a lot of courage. I mean, inherited ambitions is its own kind of treadmill. And I think we need to, to consider that thought forms and ideologies get baked into our DNA and it needs to be questioned. You know, It's like, I'm going to have to pull out some Walt Walt Whitman now. It's like, you know, examine all that insults your soul and your very flesh shall be a great poem. Like you've got to just wide awake living. No lives half lived. Question everything. Question, question, question. Yeah, no assumptions about, is this the right way? Is this the wrong way? And while you're questioning everything, you're going to realize that, you're in this grind of just wanting to love and be loved it will all you know i used to in my early days i did one on one i would call them strategy sessions i never called my coach myself a coach right and there was this exercise i used to give to people where they would say you know toward always towards the end of a conversation about their new business and their entrepreneurial path some their fear would come up it's always the last 10 minutes of the conversation you get the diamond and they would say, I can't do it. I don't, I don't. And they would give me a list, 10 reasons why they couldn't pull it off. And I'd say, okay, we got in the next nine minutes, let's do this. Why are you afraid to launch? I'm going to keep asking you this question. And they would say, I might not be able to pay rent. Why are you afraid to launch? I might um, I default on a bank loan. Why are you afraid to launch? And you get down and they go, because my, I want my father to be proud of me. Every time it was something about what someone else thought of them. Not what the bank thought of them, not what their audience or their potential customers thought of them, but someone whose opinion really mattered to them was driving their fear of launching literally or metaphorically. That's not necessarily a bad thing if that person is worthy of your love, you know, to, to win. There are some people worth working for, worth trying to please because they will walk into a burning building for you. That's a very small amount of people for most of us in our lives. Um, so everybody else can suck it. Just launch. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I had a conversation with uh, a guy named Bill Dershowitz. Uh, I read a book called The Miseducation of the American Elite, and he was talking about how often uh, achievement, acceptance to prestigious colleges, accolades, all these things – basically are just a stand-in for parental approval because we're conditioned from a very early age, particularly at my house where nobody put our report cards on the fridge. It was like, you got straight A's. It was like, well, this kid at school gets uh, $5 for every A. My dad's like, you get a meal every week, so <laughs> we're done here. This <laughs> negotiation is over. <laughs> yeah. uh, is there a point at which you think that we do let go of that need for for approval? Uh
3: yeah, like, I, you're realize, exhausted,
1: you're I realize
2: that my parents aren't going to live with the, con- with the consequences of my choices, but I, I know that somewhere deep down there is this still small part of me that's like, okay, I want you guys to approve in some way or another.
1: Sure. And some of that is, is so like natural and healthy. And some of, you know, you still wanting your parental approval is like, we want to be seen and heard and loved. It's like human nature. And we get talked out of wanting to be seen and heard and loved. We put up with so much shit in the name of being tougher and, you know, and we suffer without respect. Like, it's okay to treat me like that. No, it's not okay. You know, so there's that. Some of it is like healthy, natural. And some of that is just, that's love. You want to please your parents. You want to give them joy and comfort and happiness. It's like so healthy, but let's just be clear on what pieces are. You fill in the hole in your soul and it's really love and... And it's just some beautiful mess, you know? What was the question? (laughs) (laughs) I think you answered it. Okay.
2: Wow. Uh, Well, I I think that, uh, as always, you've kind of rocked the mic and given us a lot to think about. So I Mm want to finish um, with my final question, which I've, at this point, asked you probably three or four times. Okay. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Oh. um, What do I think it is that makes somebody unmistakable? I don't know if I've said this before, but today I will say the courage to do the work, to be fully self-expressed and to know that you being yourself is a great act of service to other people. So I would say it's a boldness to get in there. Yeah, do the work.
2: Well, I think that makes a really fitting and poetic end to a really thought-provoking, beautiful, and insightful conversation.
1: Uh, Always, always, always. Anytime. So great having conversations with you. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Likewise. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.